Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Paul here. A quick reminder that this series contains strong language, descriptions of hunting and fatal accidents. Coming up, the deer-culling game is about to be turned on its head in the most dramatic way. I heard it coming in a matter of minutes. And I thought, geez, that would be amazing to have one of them. thought it would be a lot easier if we just shot them out of the helicopter. So we talked on into taking the door off. He pulled me up and said, you'd better come across and see what we're doing here. We're shooting from the helicopter. Jesus, it's working. Helicopters and shooting from the air mean that deer hunting will never be the same again. It was just so exciting. This has got to be the only way to go. That was it. We're never, ever going to shoot from the ground again. But it also brings huge risks. I'd have one circuit of the Gisborne Airport with six minutes, logged that, and that was my only solo. I was struggling to land in the 10-acre paddock. Injuries and deaths become an almost weekly event. How they got their licences was a bit suspect. He says, we're keeping it quiet. Don't want anybody to know about it. Because if civil aviation get hold of this, they could stop it. What we wanted to do was get out of it. We thought it would catch on fire. I'm Paul Roy, and this is Deer Wars. Episode 4, Game Changer. Dr. Harvey, Harvey Hutton. He's my pilot today. When you started, Harvey, what year did you start flying? For uh, 79, 80. Oh, okay, so a bit, bit later than. Yeah, I'm not a real old timer. No, no, you're not a real old timer. You just look <laughs> like it. <laughs> So Makarora pilot Harvey Hutton was a bit later to the game. But if we go back to the 1960s, the venison boom is still in full swing and meat shooters can see a secure future ahead of them. But as we've already heard, they're not really making a dent in the deer population. It's helicopters that are the real game changer. This machine of Harvey's we are in now is a 500, a Hughes 500, powerful and agile. But back then, all that was available was a two to three person machine, similar to the so-called MASH helicopters, underpowered with limited carrying capacity on the side racks. They were mostly being used for agricultural purposes or straightforward fearing jobs. And the pilots on the whole, very cautious. 
But as we are about to find out, caution was not a trait well suited to those in the aerial venison game. Of course, New Zealand in the early 1960s was a very different country than it is now. The six o'clock swill, a wartime relic of binge drinking before bars closed for the day, was still a thing. The Haast Pass Road between Wanaka and the West Coast hadn't been finished. Any car trip off the main highway was mostly on a gravel road. Air travel was a bit of a treat. So choppers were a real novelty, and almost everyone I spoke to remembers their first sighting vividly. First time I ever saw a helicopter was Ray Wilson and two surveyors arrived at Minaret on the airstrip. And I'd just spent an hour and a half coming down the hill and heading back to my hut. And I heard it coming in, in a matter of minutes. That's Evan Wabey. Hey, this flaming thing was there and it'd come off a high peak. And I thought they'll be home and I thought, geez, that would be amazing to have one of them. Use it as a pack horse and you could get all this bloody meat out in, in no time. Evan was an experienced shooter who was on the spot during both the culling and early helicopter days. Initially, I started as a musterer, and I mustered at Minaret. And then when I gave up mustering, I took on shooting deer. It went from there. And for people who don't know, because now we're about four generations or five generations down since yeah, yeah. what were the numbers of deer like in those days when you were on the Oh, mammoth. Yeah, yeah. Like, when I was mustering, and like, we used to muster back onto the Albert Burn, which is the Alps, Southern Alps, you'd see mobs of 200. And, and, and that was in those days, you know, that was, that, and that was the colour days. And the obvious thing was the colours weren't actually keeping up with the increase. Evan was right on the money. Colours simply weren't making an impact. Neither were the venison hunters, despite using light planes, jet boats and assorted vehicles. So it was like a miracle from the skies when helicopters like these arrived on the scene. Although for the venison hunters, like Evan, they were still a novelty, and it took some time before their full potential was realised. It's debatable who first used choppers in venison recovery. Certainly, one of the very first was trialled out of Wanaka in 1963 by a certain fellow, name of Tim Wallace, and colour Wattie Cameron. Tim was a young man then, and not the legend he later became. But we'll hear more about him soon. The idea was simple. Before dawn, a group of shooters would climb the thousand metres into the headwaters of McGill's Creek, a high alpine basin off the Matukituki Valley outside of Wanaka, shoot as many deer as possible, and attempt for the first time to use a helicopter to fly the carcasses out. But first, a chopper had to be found, as there weren't many in New Zealand at the time. Robert Wilson, Tim's old friend and business partner, remembers some fairly basic, if not dodgy, beginnings. First uh, helicopter that arrived wasn't owned by Tim. It was a trial exercise, and it arrived with the pilot. There was no mechanic, and of course it was trailered in several pieces, arrived at our house at Wanaka, and it was in the backyard, 
we had to put it together as best we could with the help of the pilot and uh, make it serviceable before taking out for our first trial copter operation up the Matuki Valley. It was a very small craft that, that was a MASH helicopter, not really designed to carry big loads. It took a considerable time to reach any height. So a helicopter is now available. It's the night of the 12th of October, 1963. Tim Wallace and Watty Cameron have got their team together, experienced shooters, mostly ex-colours. They prepare for the next day's shoot. One of these men is Billy Haywood, who we've met before, a small guy capable of carrying huge loads, but he'd rather not. Well, I was working on the rabbit board with Frank Wolf and Gordon, and Waddy Cameron, who organised it, asked if they could organise a group of people to go. And we went up and stayed in Waddy's tent camp at Mill Creek. And we left about four in the morning and climbed up through Mill Creek and over the top into McGill's. And it was like a cattle yard, it was deer roaring everywhere. Hearing Bill talk, it sounds like a gentle stroll. But getting to McGill's Creek, which lies in the shadow of Mount Aspiring, requires a steep climb through tussock and shingle and well into snow country. What he had placed everybody in positions where the deer would run, because there's natural big tracks where they used to migrate backwards and forwards, and they knew which way they went, and they put us in those places. Another shooter in the group was Frank Wolfe, a very experienced and respected colour with impressive season tallies. When I talked to him in his modest home on a rainy day in Haast, his eyes still lit up, recalling this memorable day. Well, I was in the, the top basin of McGill's. There's a track going into it from the bottom basin. Below me was Tim Wallace, and above me was Waddy Cameron. Then there's others scattered around the face as well. When it started shooting, you never heard anything like it. The stags went mad. And everyone estimate what they thought the deer was. I still reckon it was between 400 and 600 deer in that bottom basin, because I had a mob of about 200 come towards us and I had to go back from where I was to shoot them, because they would have dropped over the bluff and we didn't know what a helicopter did, whether they could pick them up there or whether they are going to be worth picking up. So I went back and I just shot as they were going past me and I finished up with 50 and there's at least 150 deer in a straight line going up this valley and the stags are still roaring their heads off. You had to see it to believe it. The number of animals is staggering. But if Frank, with his impressive culling record and no bullshit account, says it was between 400 and 600 deer, you can believe it. How many deer do you reckon knocked off in total? There was roughly 210 deer hit the deck in 20 minutes. And then it was over. In the frenzy of those 20 minutes, there are varying accounts of how many deer were shot. Frank says just over 200. Billy Hayward reckons 300. But whatever the count, the shooters had done their job. 
Now it was time for the helicopter to do its thing. Wouldn't have known about helicopters or anything like that in those sort of days. No one did. We still hadn't got them out. Didn't know what was going to happen or anything because if I remember rightly, Tim and Whitey were supposed to have the Sikorsky come down and a D1 come down instead that could only take two deer or one big stag. Well, next day, Milton, Sewell, Whitey and I and then down below and this two went on the racks, one on each side and there's one little deer left over and we thought, oh, throw it on. So we threw it on. Pilot didn't know that. And it's heading away now. We thought, Jesus Christ, we better not do that again. He's having a hard job getting off. And the front of the bubble was going through tussock. We thought, Christ, I hope to Christ there's no rocks on there. <laughs> so we learned something there straight away. <laughs> Well, Frank throwing another deer on was done out of ignorance, but in the years to come, overloading choppers were just so common it was never even mentioned. You'll hear some more stories later, which will scare the pants off you. So they got out about 60 or 70, I think it was, and then they got about another 40 the next day. Yeah. The rest had to stay there because the wind came up and the thing couldn't fly on it. It only had a ceiling height of 4,500 feet. And I think there's a photo appeared in the Auckland Weekly of it sitting at 7,300 feet. <laughs> at the time, it was a pound a minute to fly a machine. Big money in those days. So they tried to use it as little as possible. But even though they had to leave most of the deer behind because of high winds, their experiment was a financial success. Just. And it showed that using choppers was not just a pipe dream. Around the time the McGill's Creek trial took place, there were other operators around the country looking at how best to use these wonderful machines. Tim Wallace was only in his 20s then, but he more than almost anyone else was an innovator. He had a breadth of vision and the business acumen and financial daring to take risks in an already risky business. Well, I've been conditioned to shooting just for the tails and I thought what a terrible waste why not recover process and export and that we did in McGill's and thankfully we made a small profit and I knew it was on then I just knew I had a vision Tim Sir Tim to give him his correct title would be a major player in the industry for decades to come. He had a serious aircraft accident at an air show in Wanaka in 1996, and it affected his speech. So although I talked to him numerous times, you heard a wee bit of him then, and his long-term memory was extraordinary, his ability to talk at length in a podcast like this was limited. Sadly, as we put the finishing touches to this podcast, Tim Wallace died peacefully in his bed and fittingly with his helicopter parked outside his window. But his record will speak for itself during the series and you'll often hear him mentioned by those who worked with him in the field or as business rivals.
in the many interviews I've done, Tim is almost the only person I've never heard anyone speak ill of. Most people are blown away by his talent and drive and his generosity to those who fell on hard times or simply needed a leg up. So no surprise then that Tim set about getting a helicopter licence as soon as possible. Here's his old friend and business partner, Robert Wilson. Tim knew of a helicopter company, small one but quite active, in Nelson that was working on agriculture work. The company was called Rudnick Helicopters and uh, Tim went up and spoke with Rudnick and Rudnick said, yes, helicopters would be the answer, Tim. Tim spent a few weeks learning to fly instead of today, months, and went ahead to secure his own first helicopter. So piloting a chopper like this is far from easy for those who've never been in one. Everything's moving at once. You've got the pedals, cyclic and governor, both hands and feet working simultaneously not to mention watching wind speed, direction, elevation, engine revs, excellent spatial awareness and a few other things. It's why training today is so rigorous. But Harvey Hutton does it in his gumboots. How many hours did you have up when you started flying? Probably 50 to 65 or something of helicopter time. So um, that's like kindergarten really. Well, but we were kids anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and these days, if you're a commercial pilot, there's a new pilot coming in, and they say, we're going to put you on deer, need. How many hours would you need? I'd say you would probably need about 300 to 400 before the insurance would touch you. Right. And a lot of times insurance have trouble insuring someone until they've got a 1,000 hours turbine now. So if you've got a mentor that's been in the business for a long time, they are a wee bit more lenient. Yeah. So in terms of like if you were driving a car or something, for instance, on an L plate, would you have been even at that level at 50 hours or what sort of level would you equate yourself being at? Because that's hardly anything. Uh, well, pretty basic. Give ourselves lots of frights. One of the biggest things was power settling. Power settling is when the helicopter's main rotor blades are caught in their own downwash and begin to lose lift. Because when you always come in, you're always high when you're a newbie and you're like a a duck coming yeah. in, you know. But once you got used to it, where you kept your speed on to you and then got over your spot. Get out and settle down. Yeah, yeah you know, you, you got better at it. Within a couple of hundred hours, you sort of got the hang of it. Because it wasn't as if you're doing one flight and then a week later doing another flight. You're flying each day. Yeah. And when we were kids, we used to fly eight hours a day. And not that we were getting animals all the time, but the excitement was so good, you just kept going. Today, an aspiring pilot will have to do at least 150 hours flying time and 100-plus hours of theory before being allowed anywhere near flying a machine commercially. But Tim Wallace and many others in that early helicopter era were more or less flying by the seat of their pants. They spent the absolute minimum time learning the basics and then they were left to their own devices. Tim Wallace's arrival in Wanaka with his new machine was big news for the locals. Because Tim would have only been our age too. He's still in your 20s, you know. So at any rate, he decided he would get a helicopter. That's Grace Overton, the wife of Gavin Overton, one of Tim's top shooters. 
So Tim got this helicopter, and I can't remember, I think it was the weed bell. And my brother worked at Luggett Game Packers, Graham, and he got out there and he laid a big circle of stones, and Tim had to practice landing in that. So word whizzed around Luggett, and we all charged over there. Everybody from the district and had a ride <laughs> when Tim was only learning. When I think of it now, God, that was a brave feat to do. Even our kids, you know. So that was great, and off they went, and... Ah, many crashes ensued. Early pilots like Tim may have been lacking in experience, but not in enthusiasm. The first efforts at using choppers were pretty crude. Te based Errol Brown, who you'll hear from later on in this podcast, the survivor of a terrible crash, remembers those early days well. Oh, it was, it was just so exciting. This has got to be the only way to go, you know. But when I first went with Tim, we didn't actually shoot out of the helicopter. We just used to fly up, fly along the tops, in and out of the basins, looking for deer. And if it was less than five, we wouldn't stop. We'd just leave them. We'd just drop me off on a ridge or anywhere, wherever I decided. And it was up to me to shoot the deer and gut them, drag them into a heap. Sometimes I had to drag them. They might be 200 yards apart or even more. Basically, they're all learning on the job. And of course, accidents are going to happen. And just 10 days after getting his chopper, Tim Wallace is about to have his first. On board are shooters Billy Hayward and Gavin Overton. Gavin's a hard man, an excellent shot. Then he flew in the lead boom, me and Billy Hayward on. And he lands in this creek and rocked it backwards on the skids and touched the tar rotor on the rock. I think we were flying up. I was busy looking out the bubble. There were his deer running along and... Next thing, we were upside down. What happened, I think, was that Tim let the tail rotor tail drop. He was busy looking at him. And it hit a rock and really must have put power on. If he dropped it straight away, it probably would have been all right. When he put the power on to go forwards, he just crashed. And that was the end of that. I'm just sitting down and Billy Hayward's on top of me and then Tim was on top of him. Again, covered in gas and... Of course, there wasn't that much about a fire until I got out. And I was there somewhere and I said, well... What say we disconnect that battery case that goes up on fire? And he said it would be good to it. So I stretched down and lay on the ground and put my arm way around pulled the turnable round. And of course, it went round another one. And a big spark. And I thought, to hell with it. I was about 30 feet away by that time. We were very worried about fire. It was a bell helicopter with the tanks above and there was fuel and stuff everywhere. We thought it would catch on fire. I remember Tim Wallace going crooked Gavin because he kicked the bubble out so we could get out. So we left it and uh, walked out. We had to walk out. And my hand is swollen up. We come down to go over a bluff and I wasn't confident that I could hang on, so I had to go home the long way. And then we started feeling real sad and we got... But I felt so sorry for Tim because he'd put all his... everything, savings into it and all. And that was so bad. As usual, they understate the situation. 
They now have to get down steep Tussocan bluffs just to reach the valley floor before a truck finds them some hours later. When Gavin came back that month, did he say anything or what was the reaction? He was flippant. Had a beer and came home, you know, a few beers in fact. <laughs> and then came home because Bill Hayward lived in Wanaka. He came home and I went crook because he was late for tea. I knew he was coming home for tea that night. And yeah, you know. He said, oh, well, we just wiped out that helicopter, so God knows what we're doing tomorrow. This is just the first of what will turn out to be a rash of crashes in the industry. Plenty of them much worse than this. Tim's not put off by this crash, but at the same time on the West Coast, other operators are also making their move. Back to Jock Fisher, who is by now a senior Forest Service ranger based in Queenstown and remembers getting a phone call. John Hannum was, was over in uh, Haas, an old mate of mine. We used to shoot together. And he phoned me up and says, said, you'd better come across and see what we're doing here. He said, we're shooting from the helicopter. And Jesus, it's working. Do you have the door off the helicopter at that stage? Oh, yeah, it was the door. He said, we're taking the door off. Because when he first started, he sat out on the skids on the side. Ah, yes. He sat out there and froze to death. <laughs> 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 said, that was a waste of time. So I, I went across there. We went out that morning, up the Arrow Water, and there was just a lot of deer on the hillside. So we pushed them up the hill, and they were just standing on the hill looking back at us. They started shooting from the helicopter. They shot 40 deer in 20 minutes. Of course, the deer aren't used to helicopters, so they're pretty easy pickings. They'll soon learn. But for the moment, these are the glory years for the hunters, and they're determined to keep it that way. He said, we're keeping it quiet. We don't want anybody to know about it, because if civil aviation get hold of this, they could stop it. That was the thing in those days. Everything was kept secret. And each helicopter operator didn't tell the other helicopter operators what he was doing kept the intelligence to themselves. Um, but the main thing was to keep civil aviation out of it. They didn't want it anywhere near. But it's hard to keep a secret on the coast. Other guys start experimenting, shooting from choppers themselves. Errol Brown remembers their eureka moment. We sort of knew that the harsh boys were shooting out of the helicopter. They used to lie on the skid and shift from the skid. But anyway, we were flying around and Dave Richardson thought, gee, it'd be a lot easier if we just shot them out of the helicopter. So we talked on into taking the door off, and that was it. We'll never, ever get a shit from the ground again. Now, in a matter of minutes, they can be whisked to the highest tops. They can fly up the longest river, all without breaking a sweat. And they're shooting from the comfort, relatively speaking, of a helicopter seat. On the surface, it all seems too good to be true. And it is. At the time, there are very few chopper pilots in New Zealand. Fewer still flying in the mountains, and none experienced at using choppers for hunting. At this stage, helicopter crews are a bit of a law unto themselves, and they're making the most of what promises to be a modern-day gold rush. So we have to get us into train on the old Hill of 12E up there. This is Hokitika-born Ian Rasmussen, another early school leaver who wants to shoot deer, a familiar story. 
He's already got his fixed-wing pilot's licence and he's flying deer carcasses out from the valleys. Then he gets offered a chance by Mountain Helicopters, one of Tim Wallace's competitors, to get his chopper licence. The instructor up there, he was a nice guy, very good, but he was an agricultural pilot and he didn't want anyone flying his machine solo in case it crashed, he'd be out of a job. So all my solo time was actually with him on the controls, and he would never let the controls go. He would sit there with his feet on everything, hanging on to everything. So the only solo I had was when the checkout pilot came down from Auckland. I'd done one circuit of the Gisborne Airport, was six minutes, logged that, and that was my only solo until I'd done my so-called 50 hours, got my rating, and then was thrown into doing venison. So that was a shock. I was struggling to land in the 10-acre paddock. You know, it was terrifying. You know, my feet bounced with nerves on the pedals, you know. <laughs> but you knew you were undercooked, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So therefore, I, I was very cautious about doing anything. Yeah, so good shoot done. That was picking them up. That was the when you started flying right against the hill. That, it was interesting, yeah. By his own admission, Ian, who expects to fail, scrapes through on his licence. But others don't leave it to chance. It was common knowledge that a lot got their licence with assistance, you know. <laughs> and the assistance was, some in the early days was, was known to civil aviation. They knew they were being assisted, but that's how things were done in the early days. You knew people. I think most of them pilots were academically challenged but they were very practical, very confident, very do-it people. And they could do, they could fly, they could do all that sort of thing. But they couldn't actually sit down and do an exam. They just went, just went blank. So uh, I think any of the pilots went through, none of them were incompetent pilots. They were very good pilots. Even though how they got their licences was a bit suspect. I've heard these rumours before, but thought it was perhaps a myth. That is, until I talked to pilot Bill Black, OBE, at his Teano home overlooking the lake. In his 70s at the time, Bill had only just stopped flying for medical reasons. Bill, with 25,000 flying hours, is a legend within helicopter circles and was involved right from the start in venison recovery. But for all these years, he's held on to his own little secret. In those days, you had to go to Bullshit Castle, Wellington. Bullshit Castle in Wellington was Bill's name for civil aviation. And do a licence. It was 100% pass. But the guy before me, he had enough time to write all the questions down and all the answers. And he talked back to Beverly Beard in the office and she wrote a script. And so he sat me down looked at the paper and thought, that's very similar to the one i got here. Pulled it out. Exactly the bloody same. But it's very hard because it's a, a two-hour paper. And when it came in, I had to make out I was sort of working away at it, you know what I mean? Yeah, so actually I cheated. So I don't mind telling any bugger there anyway. Bugger But Bill's far from alone in cheating the system. And I talked to several pilots who have also taken a shortcut or two. One has even helped others cheat. More on that in the next episode.
but even those who are doing it by the book are pretty light on actual flying experience. You'll remember Dave Richardson from Dip Flat and that terrible story about popping a boil. By now, he's left the Forest Service and life as a chopper pilot beckons. A friend of mine, Tony Paul, was getting a helicopter up at Ardmore and uh, he said, if you'd like to go up and pay the fuel, you can do your 50 hours, because that's all we had to do. So I shot up to Ardmore and got Boyce. Boyce trained me and I think I did bigger all the hours. I think he gave me about five hours dual. And he says, oh, you go away now. And I went away and the world was my oyster. Five hours dual, that's pretty slight. Never mind, Dave still goes for the final practical exam to get his licence. Maury Cooper took me, and old Maury, he was loved to fly the machine. So I said, oh, you got control, Rory. So I let him fly it. And he says, no, oh, I think you passed. You know, they were the days. I may have laboured the point of the pilot's inexperience, but remember, this is dangerous work, and it was a world first in aviation. Everything that pilots and shooters did, they did for the first time, and as we'll see, often at great cost. I've actually been lucky enough to fly in Tim Wallace's old Heller chopper, which he flew in those early days. The pilot sits in the middle, with seats on each side. There's not much in the way of instruments. Flying over Lake Wanaka, the view is, of course, spectacular, but it's no racehorse. Rather a draft horse, reliably plodding along. These rides gave me an even greater respect for what was achieved in the early years, flying long distances into the most remote valleys in New Zealand, in search of deer. Coming up next time, the genie is out of the bottle and shooting out of the choppers is the thing to do. This place was just moving with deer. Hunter pilot teams start shooting extraordinary tallies of 200 or more red deer a day. I don't know how they got up in the morning, but they did, four o'clock. While it all sounds very glamorous and exciting, we'll also hear the frightening realities for these pioneers as they gain experience the hard way. He said to me, would you get out on the top of a tree? And how far would you jump? Boom, 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 down the hill we went. I thought, we're not going to make this. I'd probably go through about two packets of cigarettes. The height scared you. When they went away in the morning, you never knew whether you would see them again. I think they drank to relieve their tensions, but then they forgot to stop. And the policeman come in. He said there's been a terrible accident in the Matuki. Two shooters killed. That's next time on Deer Wars. Deer Wars is written and presented by me, Paul Roy. It's engineered by Alex Harmer. The executive producers are Katie Gossett, Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Head over 
over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.